Welcome to Wisdom of the Elders, the podcast. I'm Ronald Lesko from Folk Music Notebook, along with the creator of this series, Sonny Oaks. Back in 2010, Sonny created a panel discussion for the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Conference uh, when she invited three distinguished members of the folk community to share their stories, advice, conversation, and an occasional song or two as they reminisced about their careers and involvement with folk music. Now, Wisdom of the Elders became such a success that Sonny continued to present them annually at NERFA, as well as the Folk Alliance International Conference and various regional conferences. And many of these conferences continue the tradition each year. Now, since most of these discussions have not been heard since the day they were held, we've decided to create this series where we go back to the archives and make them available as a series of podcasts and we're also going to be creating some brand new Wisdom of the Elders programs exclusively for this series as well. Sonny, it's good to see you again and hear you today on this podcast. Tell, tell us to, at the start, how did this whole idea come about? Hi, Ron. Well, the idea came about because I started to think that there are so many really wonderful people out there who have been in the business forever and they're aging and they've all been interviewed numerous times. But then I got the idea that what if we interviewed them as a group? Because what would happen is since they know each other probably through the years, they would be able to bring stories out from each other that had never been heard before. So that's, that was the general idea, was to bring out some new information about these people triggered by them themselves. And uh, yeah, that, that that's how it started. And it has been just delightful to listen to them. Oh, and I've attended many of them, and it's it's a delight to listen to. And uh, I think what's so great about the series is they because they all know each other in one way or another, uh, they kind of let their guard down, and it becomes so personal and so many great stories that comes up about uh, about their lives. And uh, we're going to hear some of them in in, the, in this series. Uh, we've we've chosen the first one uh, from a 2015 conference that was held at Folk Alliance International in Kansas City. Well, it was a wonderful conference, and I believe that that was the year that Peggy Seeger was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award. And so we had her there, as, as it were. So I thought to myself, well, who does Peggy know? Of course she knows Tom Paxton. They've been around on the circuit for so long. And then I thought about a venue in Ann Arbor called The Ark, which has been run for many, many, many years by a guy named Dave Siglin. And I know that both Tom and Peggy had appeared at The Ark. So I thought, ah, there, there's a trio that will work, work together. And then I asked Grit Laskin to co-emcee with me. Grit Laskin is from Canada. And he, well, as you'll see when you watch this, he has an amazing personality. And it just clicked. It was one of my favorite episodes of, of Wisdom of the Elders. Oh, it's great. And I'm so glad you chose Grit, too. He's not only a wonderful folk singer, but uh, a luthier that has created some beautiful instruments. And uh, he has a rapport. I think maybe we ought to give him a, a show one of these days, too, on the radio. Well, let's go back in time now. Uh, I think we're, we're going to have you on the stage as you introduce these three guests to a, a captivated audience in Kansas City. Here we go back now to 2015 to Wisdom of the Elders. I'm Sonny Oaks. I dreamed up this crazy idea and it's been working, so we keep doing it. It gets more fun every time. This should be a real guest with this group. 
Okay, what you, who you see on the stage is Peggy Sear, Tom Paxton, Dave Siglin, and my co-host, Britt Laskin. Uh, Britt and I are going to interview the three elders. Of course, I'm not one of them. <laughs> and uh, then we'll have a general question session. The idea of this is that over the years, every one of these people has been interviewed time and time again. But the idea here is to interview in groups, the reason being that they have a lot of shared experiences, and it'll be interesting to see what, see, there they go already. No, no, don't, don't talk about those shared experiences. It's the other. So, I just want to very quickly say who my co-host is. Grit Laskin is a very well-known luthier, he lives up in Toronto, Canada. He's an incredible musician. He also is one of the co-founders of Borealis Records, and he's one of the people who keep that thing going, that wonderful label running. And he's a songwriter. You name it, he does, and he's sort of our modern-day uh, Renaissance man. So, Grit, take it away, please. You said we're going to have a gas up here, and she wasn't referring to our age and digestive problems, just to be clear from the start. Um, but uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk to you, Peggy, first. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people in the audience here saw the award that Peggy got and the film about her. Did you? Yeah. So the point of this isn't really to go over all the many accomplishments and things that have happened. Most people are familiar with you, as they are with other people on the stage. But one of the last things you said when you accepted the award was, I'm still here. It was a Lifetime Achievement Award, but you made that point. I'm still here and still active is what it implied. So the first question I want to ask you is what gets you out of bed in the morning? I need to pee. <laughs> I gave you that. I gave you that. I was thinking, I was going to say, accept what you have to do in the bathroom, because I knew you'd go there. All right. Yeah, all right. He's, he's my straight man. But, what, but you know what I mean. Everybody needs, everybody needs something to get them out of bed. What gets them excited about the day and where they are in their life. That's really what I'm asking. Well, if I'm going to be honest, it's very hard for me to get out of bed because it's painful. You know, I have arthritis and lots of joints that, you know, want to stay horizontal. And what I try to do is give myself something that I have to get up. If I have a doctor's appointment, if I have somebody visiting, um, I have a very nice PA who comes three times a week, and I make sure that she gets there early in the morning so that I am not hanging around in my nightdress downstairs getting tea when she comes. I don't want her to see me like that. <laughs> Vanity is all. <laughs> um, so it's usually something that I have to do. If it's a beautiful day, I have a lovely place just to watch the trees while I lie in bed. But um, sometimes just a beautiful day gets me up. All right. Well, let me stay with that same question, but expand it almost like a metaphor. You know, what gets you into life each day when you've already accomplished so much, so much creative satisfaction? Well, I'm, I'm slowing down terribly, although the days are speeding up. I can't kind of get a, you know, a, a balance be between the two. Sometimes it's funny and sometimes it bloody well isn't. Um, 
I'm, I have a project I'm trying to do now, which is a memoir. There's a biography being written about me, and the person who's writing it has gifted me with permission to read each editing. Mm. And she says, just put all the, the comments in red, and she gets them back in black, red, 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 black, black, red, black. And it's not that I'm rewriting it, it's that it's very hard to write about someone. It, it, I don't want it to please me always, because I've said, you know, I, I, want, the, I want the blemishes, I want everything in it. Um, but um, that comes in my email and the memoir, and I just remember too much. I have pictures in my head, I have stories in my head, I have people in my head, and mm. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to write War and Peace again, but you know, it's, it's a lot to remember, and that gets me up a lot. You're in my head, by the way. I am. Uh, we'll huh? talk about that later. But, uh, <laughs> but it's great in there, I just want you to know. It's amazing. <laughs> Endless, endless Billy Ikea shelves filled with stuff. It's astonishing what's in there. Uh, speaking about what's in there, all right, so that's good. You're thinking, you're, the memoir, and you're thinking back on, on so much that's happened. Can you recall a moment that surprised you in your life, was an epiphany about any aspect of your life that shot you off on a different direction? I met you and McCall. Oh, okay. Probably, other than the births of my children, one of the most joyful experiences of my life was in Santa Barbara. My father had just remarried the person that I was named after, his first love. I was named after his first girlfriend, although my mother was his second wife. And, um, wait, wait, wait. Can we, do we, can we draw that out? Uh. But I, I, he, he, he married her after my mother died, you know. And uh, I was trying to enter Santa Barbara life, and I had great trouble. Um, my stepmother's friends had daughters, and they paired me off with them, and then we had barbecues on the beach. That's not my style. And so we were in this barbecue on the beach in Santa Barbara, and way, way off in the distance, I saw, Mon uh, from Montecito, I saw Santa Barbara. I had a temporary boyfriend at the time, and so I took off, I took off my shoes, and I said, I'm going to run to Santa Barbara. It's about four miles, I think. And I took off in my bare feet, and Ray came after me. And I ran. I was like Atlanta, you know? It was the most unbelievable thing. I ran for joy. I ran, the stars were up there, the sea was there, and I was 20. I will never forget the joy of that running. And he came after me, and he was in his shoes. And we came to a river. And he was pretty good at running. And, uh, and I said, I'm just going to the river. He says, I got my shoes on. Uh, you know Kirsty's song, Not In These Shoes. Kirsty McCall, it's a song, Not In These Shoes. And I said, I'll carry you. Well, he weighed a good 40 pounds heavier than me. I carried him across the river. And I ran into Santa Barbara ahead of him. But the joy, the joy of just being young and the, the, the being fit enough to do that yeah. and happy enough to do that and just forgetting everything but just running. I'll never, ever forget it. Wow, yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just yeah. What? 
I'm going to change tack a little and get specific for a moment. But I'm, this is a question I'm curious about, and I hope it echoes some people in the audience. What was the reaction the very first time you performed I Want to Be an Engineer? Oh, gosh. Oh, okay. It was written for a stage show called the Festival of Fools that we did every year, which was a mixture. It was given in a little pub that seated 200 people. It had three stages and was working with a group that was doing theater. I'm sorry, I get um, drippy nose from man-made stuff. And there's lots of man-made stuff here. I don't mean you, I mean... <laughs> so, um, it, Ewan McCall wrote the script, which consisted of clippings from the news every year. It was very political, extremely political. And uh, he was in a bind because he hadn't finished the writing in time for everybody to, to, to learn the parts. I'm not a very good actor, by the way, but I had a couple of acting parts. And this happened to be the year of the women. And as you know, um, this year of the women, the year of the dog, the weir year of the tapeworm, the year of this and that, <laughs> they all run concurrently with the year that we don't have to name, which is the year of the man, okay? okay. So, <laughs> so, I had, so he said, write a song about women. So I went downstairs, and in about 15 minutes, I wrote a song, it's going to be an engineer. And I never wanted to be an engineer. Yeah. Okay, so, um, and the last verse was very dreary. I took it upstairs, I sang it to you, and he said, you're going to leave them wanting to cut their throats, don't do that. I'll go down and write a different verse. So I went down, I wrote a different verse. It's probably the fastest song I ever wrote. And the first time it was sung, it was sung with a group of us, and I was about 38 at the time, all in little miniskirts, tiny pussy pelmets, they call them over there. <laughs> do you know what a pelmet is? A pelmet goes along the top of the curtain rail, okay, to hide the curtain rail itself. <laughs> oh, well, this was going to be broadcast, but that's done now. <laughs> it's only about cats. It's only about cats. Oh. So, so the, a, a, a number of us, and we all had very good legs. So there's me at the front, Sandra and Frankie and Buff and Susanna, that's right, in a V. And, that, and we sang the parts of it that are for what other people tell us, because it's divided into two parts. Major, I'm telling what I think and what's happened to me. Mm -hmm. And in minor, it tells what society expects from you. And uh -huh. Mr. Pete Seeger cut out all the minor parts. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And I took, him to, I took him to task for that. He said, but it makes it so long, Peggy. <laughs> I said, yes, it does make it a long time, but this is, you know, that's what people say. So the first time I sang it was in a pussy pelmet in a <laughs> pub. <laughs> Uh, you I, did I, ask. Uh, yeah, and I'm <laughs> somewhat regretting it now, but, you know. <laughs> but you'll regret it later. <laughs> All right, final question for me. And it may be a question that could be posed to anybody up on stage and might be posed to another one on stage. But as an elder, uh, even though there's more time to come, there's nobody in front of you anymore. That's hard. You are the one in front that is the influence to other people behind. And I just, yes, I wanted to know if, you, if that occurred to you, if you think about it, how it feels. Well, I got lonely, so I came here. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right, I was going to sing a song, and I hope that's okay. Yes. 
I, if you'll give me this, I should say that I shouldn't be doing this because I haven't sung for 10 months. I've been really ill and I've lost the ability to play practically and the ability to sing practically, but it's a good song. <laughs> and it just kind of fits this. <clears throat> you all know the Cinderella story where she goes to the ball and at midnight her coach turns to a pumpkin pulled by rats. You remember? So I wrote this song as an encore Nobody laughed. <laughs> the height of egotism is to write a song for an encore, presuming that you'll get one. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> and then I'll stop saying funny things. You just have to say funny things when you're with grit. <laughs> Other than that, I'm very serious. When I wake up in the morning, I'm 100 years old. My feet are on the floor and I'm 99. A good hot shower and I'm looking at 80 After breakfast I'm 79 Getting younger by the hour Gotta get home by midnight <laughs> It's a beautiful day I'm 64 in my new red shoes My kitchen is a dance floor Lunchtime and I'm in my prime 50 and I'm heading for 49 Getting younger by the hour Gotta get home by midnight Good God An hour ago I was 41 I said I was 39 But now I'm 20 Heading for my teens Hormones driving me out of my mind If I stay any longer I'll be buying those blue jeans the ones manufactured with the holes all over Getting younger by the hour Gotta get home by midnight Now you know the chorus by now <laughs> When the clock strikes twelve Nature resumes her own gravitational plan And then I'm hitting the road With Father Time dragging me by the hand But I'm gonna leave a little glass slipper behind Before the rats start pulling my van Getting home by the hour Gotta stay home by midnight It's a nice guitar, but I can't play it. <laughs> My doorbell rang in the middle of the night. Prince Charming standing there. He looked into my blue eyes. Says you're the color of time. He knelt down by my chair. And that little glass slipper just fitted me fine. He's waiting for me now in the moonlight. He said, come home whenever you like. I want to run my hands through his curly gray hair. <laughs> so good night. I got to get home. All right. I have the honor and privilege to put Tom Paxton through the questions. Oh, boy. <laughs> I have known Tom forever, and even before I knew him, I knew him because I'm going to start with a very quick anecdote. In my family, when I gave my kids baths at night, the two boys together, we sang when they were in the bathtub, and the one song that comes to my mind that we sang all the time was... Lyndon Johnson told the nation, have no fear of escalation. I am trying everyone to please, though it isn't really war. 
we're sending 50,000 more to help save Vietnam from Vietnamese. <laughs> and that was, that was our song that we sang every time they took the bath. <laughs> and that was written by the one and only Tom Paxton. And, <laughs> and it was one of many incredible songs Tom wrote. I mean, between the funny songs, the serious songs, the kid songs, Tom is just a walking miracle. I mean, to think of all the things that you have done in your life, Tom, it's just amazing. You started out, you were born in Chicago, you went to Oklahoma, you went to high school and college there. And this is the part that I have a, my first question is, the next thing you did, I think you went into the Army. What was that all about? <laughs> well, they had a little thing called the draft. Uh, you'll recall that. Oh, uh, yes. And uh, I was in the reserves, and uh, I did uh, six months active duty. And uh, In New Jersey? In Fort Dix, New Jersey, yeah. Uh, and I was in the, um, the elite uh, clerk typist school. <laughs> and uh, I, I dare say I was, I was the honor graduate of my class. I was the chief clerk typist of my class. And we had a typing class two hours a day, four days a week in these steaming hot army barracks. And along with about six or seven other of my colleagues in there, I could have passed the final on the first day. I knew how to type. But of course, the, the Army's logic is that you are here to learn how to type whether you already know how or not. <laughs> and so to keep from going stark raving mad, I used the typewriter to write letters home. And uh, one day I made up uh, the lyrics to this song called The Marvelous Toy on the Army's oh. typewriter. <laughs> and <clears throat> Your tax dollars. I don't know if they, I, I, it was on this improbable pink practice paper that we had. I have no idea where that came from, but um, in my many moves, uh, I lost the original uh, typed lyric. So um, it's out there somewhere. And it was from there that you started to hang into Greenwich Village, is that correct? Oh yeah, every weekend, like a shot, I was into Greenwich Village and uh, I was getting to know people like Dave Van Ronk and Noel Stuckey and Len Chandler. And um, I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I, I grew up in Oklahoma and went to the university and was a, a dyed-in-the-wool folky from, from the beginning. I mean, as a child, I remember listening to Burl Ives records and, and loving them. Um, and then at school, uh, I was introduced to uh, Pete, uh, Pete's recordings and, and Woody's. I remember the first Woody recording I heard, I thought, this guy can't sing at all. Uh, uh, guess what, he could. Um, but I also had my epiphany, if you want to call it that, came uh, one day, I came over to a friend's um, you'd have to call it his pad. It was a pad. Um, and he said, listen to this, and he put the needle down, and out came the banjo introduction to Darlin Corey, and it was the Weavers at Carnegie Hall, which was, uh, I've talked to, you know, a lot, of my, a lot of my friends had the same experience I did, hearing that album. Uh, I told uh, Pete one day that 
I, I underwent a chromosomal rearrangement as I, as I heard that <laughs> song. I went from someone who loved this stuff uh, and became someone who had to do it, had, had to do this, um, and never looked back. That album was, by the time I finished that album, I had changed, um, and I was on this path. Um, the thing about that album that I still treasure is the incredible breadth of the repertoire. Uh, you have, a, you know, Hush Little Baby Don't Say a Word, followed by a song from the Spanish Civil War, followed by Rock Island Line, followed by Weem Away. You know, it just, it's a relentless, relentless performance. And it just, uh, so they were the first to publish uh, Blowing in the Wind. Um, and, and Phil, I think, had over 20 songs. 69. How many? 69. 69, 69 yeah. songs. <laughs> Somewhat over 20. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 69 songs published. I don't know how many I had in there, but it was a bunch. And uh, once a month, Art DeLugov, who owned uh, the Village Gate, which was not one of our normal venues. The Village Gate was a little higher up the food chain than the places where we were playing. But um, Art Lugov was a good man, and once a month he donated uh, uh, the stage to us on a Sunday afternoon, and we would have these hoot nannies um, to raise money for Broadside. And the one I remember the most is not the first one. I had no recollection of that, but. Uh, as a hootenanny, of course, we all took the stage together and sat in a semicircle and and got up and sang with one another. And it was a you know very loose, um, very comfortable kind of uh, uh, way of doing it. And uh, on this particular Sunday, um, I, I was two seats away from Lynn Chandler, and in be between sat this little drink of water from New Jersey, whose guitar was as big as she was. You know, it was and it was Janice Ian. She was 13 years old. This was her first ever public performance. And she got up and sang some song that was so sassy that Len and I were falling all over ourselves, laughing with delight at this. At this. And we, we made her go back and sing, go on, kid, go back and sing another one. And of course, like a year and a half later, she was a star. You know, and we were still doing hoots at, <laughs> at the village gate. <laughs> wow. And uh, I know that you traveled, I think as early as 19, in the early 1960s, you had your first experience traveling to Great Britain and performing over there. And would you tell the story that, I interviewed Tom in the, in the 1980s and he told a story that I still remember. Which one I, is this? The one about the, the bikes. Oh, oh my <laughs> God, yeah. I said, what was this the This was in 1965, um, Midge and I went for the first time uh, we went as uh, tourists, but um, uh, a, a, a semi-professional folk singer named Theo Johnston uh, said, I met him at the Gaslight, and he said, if you come over, I'll arrange for some folk club performances for you. And I said, great, we're going to come over in, I guess it was March or April. And uh, at the same time, I'd been corresponding with a, um, a singer-songwriter in uh, Scotland named Matt McGinn, who I always thought was Scotland's uh, Woody Guthrie. He was a terrific little guy. And um, so we went to England and I started doing some concerts and, and offers started coming in. Now the English folk song 
clubs are very different than, than what we have. Um, we have like the Gaslight, where we worked, was, was a, a commercial establishment, really. I mean, it was non-profit by, by failure, but uh, um, it, it was a, a bricks and mortar. Whereas in England, uh, folk clubs were organizations and they would, they would have an arrangement with a pub uh, and one of the upstairs rooms and they would meet one night, a, one night a week and they had their format of guest singers and house singers. And, and the thing was, it was folk night, so it would be packed. So it was like wherever you were, it could be a Monday night, but it felt like Saturday night because the joint was jumping. It was wonderfully exciting for us, but these, these were early days, and so some things kind of didn't fall out the way they were supposed to. We got hired to do, be part of uh, a show in Liverpool. No, 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 not Liverpool, Blackpool. Um, sponsored by Raleigh Bicycles. Uh, Raleigh, apparently, some genius at Raleigh thought that he would try to tie into the burgeoning folk music movement and this, this was their shot at that. So right down by the, by the gray waters of the Irish Sea, um, we went in the, it's the biggest bar in England. And the stage was crammed with Raleigh bicycles. You had to kind of <laughs> weave to get to the microphone, okay? Now this was a huge, huge bar and it happened to coincide with the all England motorcycle championships <laughs> so the bar was packed with motorcyclists in leather who hadn't caught on to the folk music thing yet they weren't hostile they were oblivious so it was like singing to leather <laughs> with that, the kind of feedback you'd expect from leather. <laughs> so it, it was a terrible, terrible, we had to do two shows. And then there was a, a, a party <laughs> back at the hotel, which was one of these ramshackle seaside places. And the guy, the guy from Raleigh was, was uh, like an old school Thai fellow. You know, he had, he had, he had the blazer and, and, and the Raleigh bicycle tie or whatever it is. And he got drunk. And he kept asking, asking the girls to take their clothes off. And the party kind of went south from there. Um, and this, this was um, in the middle of a wonderful tour, and Midge and I were just kind of saying, is this real, is this, uh, is this what it's going to be like? No, no, it wasn't, it was That It was the first tour, and I'm doing, uh, uh, in May, I'll be doing my 50th. This is 50 you years. Yeah. All right, very briefly, because we're just about out of time for you, one more question. Oh, I mean, you were married to Midge more than 50 years, and unfortunately you just lost her. You knew you were very close with Dave Van Ronk. You lost him and Phil. How does it feel being like the survivor of so many wonderful people, and there you still are? And where do you take it from here? How do you make it matter? 
Well, I, I'm also the last, uh, the last survivor of my immediate family. Um, oh. Parents, siblings, all gone. I'm the last, the last one. Um, it, it hurts. That's what it does. It hurts to lose people you love. You know, uh, Midge and I were married for 50 years. We were within two months of 51. And everything that I've done, I mean, I owe to her. She, she, was, um, she was my bullshit detector, you know? <laughs> Hemingway said every writer needs a bullshit detector, and she was mine. She was a great editor. She, she could tell when I was uh, going off beam or something uh, with, with a song. Um, she laughed at the times that she was wrong. She initially didn't like uh, whose garden was this. She changed her mind later, and she would laugh at herself for that. But she, she had an, a really good sense of what, what worked and what did not. Uh, you know, missing Phil and missing Dave, you know, it's, it's, it, there's such a part, such a part of me, you know, uh, that... It really is uh, walking around with phantom limbs. Um, uh, to say to say I miss them is 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 impossibly to uh, under underplay it. Thank you. Yeah. And the. Uh, third person we have on stage here is Mr. David Siglin. And uh, for those who don't know, he was the man running the Ark. One of the seminal, well, there you go. Still to this day, one of the seminal venues in all of North America on a very short list of seminal venues. And one of the reasons it's that seminal is because it's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Wow. Again. And, um, and for the bulk of those, Dave, you were running it. You were running it and booking it. And uh, I know there are a lot of stories. <laughs> and, um, and, but one thing I always wanted to know, almost 50 years of booking artists many days a week. It wasn't just uh, one concert a month or on the weekends. That's a lot of artists of all different kinds. So you knew them as musicians and artists and performers, but then you got to meet them as people and you found out what they were really like. <laughs> and I'm wondering if there were any surprises in either direction, positive or negative, <laughs> when the two sides met, the performance and no. the... No? <laughs> You're a great interview. I just want to thank you for that. <laughs> No, no. The problem with that is, uh, I mean, I didn't know them before they came, so mm -hmm. it couldn't be a surprise because I had no idea what they were going to be like. And um, God, you know, first of all, I didn't run the ark. Um, Linda and I ran the ark. I should have mentioned that. Thank you. Well, no, it's true because, uh, I mean, we were at Ark One. There were three arks, and um, Ark One was in a house 
And the performance was on the main floor, and performers stayed upstairs. And I remember you and Ewan, when we were going to move, telling us we shouldn't move because it would destroy it. Do you remember? Do you remember? I had borrowed a guitar because um, one of the airlines had ruined my guitar. Yes. I borrowed a guitar and I hung it up, and, and it fell down and, and smashed in pieces, pieces behind the stage. Oh. Uh oh. <laughs> my fault. I just hung it on a little nail. That, that was, was you? <laughs> <laughs> Which is the, sorry, it was just the perfect moment to mention that Susie Vinnick lent that guitar <laughs> without knowing the risk she was taking. Well, you know, I do have to say that, I mean, by the time I retired, we were booking about 300 some odd shows a year, and I know that my daughter books it now, and she books about 320 shows a year, and it's uh, it's obviously it's a marathon. It's it's not a sprint. It's like swimming the English Channel, taking a day off, and then swimming it again, and taking a day yeah, off, and swimming yeah. it again. And um, there were, you know, well, okay, it wasn't. It's not so much surprises, but I remember when Mike came the first time. You know, everybody's a groupie for somebody. Everybody's a groupie for somebody. My wife was said the only person that would really impress her, if Tennessee Williams walked up to her and started talking to her, she would just <laughs> fall on the, on the pavement. And uh, I didn't pursue that question. But, um, and when Mike first came, I was like, oh my God, this is Mike Seeger. You know, and Linda didn't even know who he was. So she wasn't impressed at all. And, um, He's a singer, you know, and uh, and he's pretty good. So on Friday night, he was at that time in his career performing in concert halls. And he came and he did the arc, and his entire show was shooting to the audience 300 feet away. And everybody's sitting at his feet going, you know. And he played tremendous music and everything, and he was doing a workshop the next day, and I thought, you know, what do we do here? How do I can't ask him? This is Mike Seeger, you know. And Luke Baldwin, who was a singer-songwriter, said, "Let me handle it." So he's doing this workshop and he's talking about music and everything. And he said, "Are there any questions?" And one of the questions, Luke said, "Mr. Seeger, what's the difference between performing in a large auditorium and in a small club?" And he explained the difference perfectly. And that night, his performance just brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> And uh, so Friday night after the show, we were all sitting there in the green room, and we're sitting there, and I'm just like, I, you know, I'm just speechless. I'm just sitting there. And Mike said, I'm hungry. And Linda said, well, the refrigerator's in the kitchen, and there's some meat and some bread on top of the refrigerator, and, you know, help yourself. And Mike said, huh? <laughs> so, yeah, it's right in there. Go on, help yourself. Now, plenty of food. Don't worry about it. So he went in and he made himself a sandwich and they became best friends. It was like, you know, suddenly somebody's treating me like a human being and uh, instead of a god. And it was, so that was, uh, that was one of my epiphanies that performers, they're humans, you know? Yeah. And my job is to give them the space that they need to do a good show and give them what they need to be human and just a person, you know? And, uh, and it worked out fine. But they lived with us, and it was like, 
I suppose you could say it was a rolling party for 18 years, but the party was controlled. You did say that was 320 shows a year to book. How did you maintain the energy over decades to be doing that? It's not an easy task. No, and that, um, it's easier to book 320 shows a year than it is for a performer to go do 150 shows a year. I'll tell you that right now. So I didn't think I had it hard at all. And, um, and when we started out, we were booking, a uh, performer would come stay Friday and Saturday, and uh, we'd do an open stage on Wednesday night and maybe have something like a movie on Monday or whatever. So that wasn't hard. And there were more and more shows as we went along, as there were voids to fill in the Canterbury House, another club which did the pop folk, which was Jack Elliott. And did you perform there? You probably did. The house, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, at, at the Canterbury House was a, a club. It was a commercial club in town. No. And, uh, oh, you weren't asked. And, uh, no. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Can of worms. And uh, when they closed, we started hiring singer-songwriters, too, because we had to fill the void in town, you know. So we just added more shows. Instead of cutting off this, we just added that. And that's when Bruce Phillips and Rosalie Sorrells came. And, um, and I remember when we met David Bromberg, we sat down with the Canterbury House, and we had, you know, where should David play? He's, he's roots music. He's, you know, he's this, he's that. But he's an incredibly exciting entertainer, and, uh, you know, and he's going for the pop market, too. And so we finally decided, okay, Canterbury House is where he'll start. And they folded a couple of weeks before he came. So he played the Ark and played it ever since. And um, no, I don't even know where I... What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> it was how you sustain the energy oh, to do all that. Because right. it built up gradually, and it was so gradual that I didn't even notice it. And uh, when, the, when I retired, they were looking for somebody to replace me, and I had mentored my assistant, who happened to be my daughter. But that's just, that's just the way it was. I mean, it, she wasn't my assistant because she was my daughter. Nor my daughter because she was my assistant. But, you but, got you got there before me. Yeah, but it just worked out that way. And uh, so I, the last year I was there, I was having her book all the shows, and she booked the folk festival, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then I retired, and they pulled a switcheroo on me, and they said we're going to do a national search. And uh, and I said, look, this is not like booking twelve shows a year. This is not like booking a folk festival for a weekend. This is every single day, and it's going to be very hard to find somebody to do that, and she knows how to do it. And so they did their national search, and she won, which is probably the way it should be, because I don't know anybody who out there, except maybe five or six people, who could book over 300 shows a year and still have any energy and a private life to boot. You know, It's very difficult now. But it wasn't difficult for me because by the time I retired, it was just, you know, I mean, I was working 60, 70-hour weeks, and I didn't really notice it. I still had plenty of time to coach softball and stuff like that. Well, almost 50 years of doing it, I know there are some stories. There have, in fact, there's probably enough stories to fill Encyclopedia Britannica if there was still an Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> to fill Wikipedia. But... Uh, is there any particular story coming to your mind right... I see the smile. Coming to your mind right now, we have time for one. But he can't tell that story. <laughs> okay, then... You know, 
All people except said, that one. People have said, and I'm sure they said this to you, and I'm sure they said this to you, you should write a book. Of yeah. And, you know, and in my situation, my life has been uh, through the lives of the people that played there in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, I, there are great stories about Rosalie. Just, but I can't tell them, <laughs> especially if this is being recorded. <laughs> but hey, after the show, I have to tell you the story. <laughs> okay, Wait. hold on, hold on. So, Stop tape. Stop <laughs> tape. I'm going to lock the door. <laughs> and I want to say this: after this, ask Grit about the greatest practical joke ever played that I've ever heard of in my life. But it didn't Why happen to me. It happened to Grit. Why after? Can I tell that one? Okay. This is something I heard. Yeah. This isn't something that happened. Tell us the story. So, very briefly, Tam Kearney was uh, the main guy in the Friends of Fitter's Dream, which was one of the greatest groups that I've ever heard in my life. They were tremendous. Great sense of humor. Okay. So, Grit bought a new car. What was it? Do you want me to tell it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. This was incredible. Just, okay, because it'll lessen the pain yes. for, me, for you <laughs> as well as me. So I was 18 years old, hanging around the Fiddler's Green Folk Club in Toronto, getting into music, joining the house band that became the Friends of Fiddler's Green. And I had just bought my first car, a used Volvo station wagon for $800. And I had heard incredible things about Volvo. You know, in my minimal number of years on the planet, I heard they were just incredible vehicles in many ways, safety, gas, mileage. So I bought it and I thought, let's check the mileage and see if it's really true. So each week, uh, the club in those days, Fiddler's Green in Toronto ran two nights a week, Tuesday and Friday. I was there both nights. I'd come in and I would say, I've been checking the mileage. I am now getting 90 miles to the gallon. <laughs> and everyone in the club is saying, wow, amazing. You're kidding, can't be. I'm coming in Friday. You won't believe it. I am up to 112 <laughs> miles to the gallon. The next week, incredible. I am already hitting 210 <laughs> miles to the gallon. And of course, I'm seeing my gas gauge do this and I thought, well, it's a used car, I've got a faulty gauge, I'm gonna have to fix this thing at some point. But every day I'm coming into the club and I'm saying, you will not believe it. I, I'm telling you the truth, I am over 300 miles to the gallon on this Volvo. They are incredible cars. And everyone in the club is saying, Grit, that is amazing, wow. So, what I didn't know was that Tam Kearney, the proprietor of the club, at night knew where I parked my car. He was going with a can of gas and pouring it in. And of course, the young toughs who would hang around the parking lot, you know, they're watching this guy do something funny with the car, you know. And uh, his plan B was to then start siphoning. <laughs> and it was about to start because his wife complained that he was spending all the grocery money on the gas for Grits Volvo so the first night he starts siphoning just his luck the police are kind of cruising around and I excuse me sir uh, what are you doing well you know it's just a practical joke on my friend really let's go talk to this friend and I lived two blocks away. It was a community center parking lot, the only place to put it. Comes to the door, Tam and a cop knock on my door, and I open the door, and the cop says, 
do you know this man? And I, I knew that Tam Kearney had friends in the police force and he, that he was great at practical jokes. I thought this is one of his jokes. I'm going to go along with it. I've never seen him before in my life. <laughs> They shut the door, and then it struck me, oh, maybe I made a mistake. <laughs> so I opened the door, no, 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 only kidding, you know? And so they come back, and everything gets explained, and then I find out that everyone at the club was in on it. Everyone, the audience, the volunteers, they all knew except me, Mr. Trusting Me. Coda, I go to pick up my car another night in the community parking lot. Those three toughs are sitting there, and you can see the, the package of cigarette rolled up and the T-shirt. This was the era, right? And there's smoke on there. And I'm getting into my car, and I go, Hey, mister, yeah. how's your mileage? Honest, honest story. But, all right, there was a time, the Friends of Fiddler's Green did something with the Ark. I mean, yes, it should have been connected to the Ark, well, Dave. All right. So we had a pub sing, and uh, we, we didn't have a liquor license. So we put this big tent up in the front yard, and it was sponsored <laughs> by Guinness. We had a pub sing, and, and we had bands that could get people to sing along. And we had the Friends of Fiddler's Green and John and Tony one year and everything. So the friends came down, and they did Friday and uh, Saturday night in the pub swing, and everybody was pounding down Guinness and Bass Ale and uh, Harp Lager. And... But they wanted to do a regular show on Sunday night. And I figured, well, you know, fine, okay. So they're going to do a show on Sunday night. But everybody had come to the pub sink. And, uh, you know, so they all had hangovers on Sunday. And eight people showed up. I think it was eight. About something that. like that. And they're standing there. And uh, there was a new movie in town, That Sinking Feeling, done by the same Scottish director who did uh, Gregory's Girl. And it was playing at the art theater in town. And so they said... Look, let's take the money, and we'll take the entire audience with us to the theater. And they loaded all eight people in their van with the band, which was another eight people. And they drove down to the campus theater, paid everybody's entry into the theater to watch the movie. And the movie was like a half an hour before it was going to start, so they all went up on stage and sang to the audience. Can I jump in here? Yeah, we, we, we started doing unaccompanied Scottish songs. And the lighting guy must have thought, Gee, nobody tells me about the promos, right? <laughs> because the minute our song finished, the lights dimmed, the movie starts, and, okay, back over to you. Or do you want me to... <laughs> it's supposed to be interviewing you. Yes, you know? Dave. I've Dave. got a year to go before I'm the elder, right? I wasn't there. I was cleaning up the ark. So <laughs> we did come back. We played another set of music, and then we sent them home. We took the audience to the movies at the art. That's cool. <laughs> so, but I will tell one story that happened at the art. I, um, my wife is a very strong personality, and, uh, and I, I met her in one of my 14 years in college, uh, somewhere in there. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, you know, I, I knew her for about a week, and I thought I'd really like to get to know this woman, so I asked her to marry me a week after I met her, and she said, sure. So being mature, we decided to wait till after finals, and, and we did. And I married her January 8th. I figured it's a fiddle tune, the 8th of January, and it's the Battle of New Orleans, which I think is going to take place every day of my life from here on in. And I'll never forget our anniversary. We're having our 50th anniversary next year, and I've remembered it three times so far. But 
Yeah, well, you know, I forget my birthday too. But so I ran the open stages for eight years and I reached a point where I couldn't run another open stage. I couldn't hear another amateur musician, including myself. And I, I just said, I, I can't do it anymore. Now I had had a hat and you'd draw the name out of the hat. And, you know, okay, you're first, you're second. And Linda said, I'll run them. Linda was from a theater family and, uh, and she's very practical and she always believes in giving the bad news first and then lightening it up and I could never tell anybody they had no talent. That's just, you know, whatever. So she's running and she put the best players on in the bulk of the evening and the beginners are the worst acts on it, right at the beginning and right at the end. And, uh, and this went on and, you know, and all of a sudden the open stages just became popular. It was like, what, what, a, what a concept. And um, so there was this guy there who was like, I mean, he was god awful. I mean, I, it's just flat out terrible. He was so bad. This is true. You know the song Railroading on the Great Divide? It's in 3-4. He sang it in 4-4. Four, four. So not only was he singing it badly, it was 33% longer. You know, just like, it was just awful. And so it's before the evening, this is an arc one, and I'm washing the cups, you know, getting ready for the evening, and Linda's making out the lineup, okay, blah, blah, blah. and this kid walks into her and said, hi, Linda, I thought maybe I would go on and, uh, like, start the second set tonight. And she says, well, actually, Tom, I have you on second in the first set. And he said, you don't like my music, do you? And she said, no, Tom, in every great artist's career, there's a point where they, they lose faith in themselves and they, they just feel like they're going to quit. And she said, and there's somebody who really believes in them and they say, no, you're, you're a great artist. You know, whether it's a painter or a singer, whatever, you're great. And it just gives them that push and they give that extra energy and they go right to the top. Or there's somebody in their career who says, you stink. You should just quit and forget about it and get a regular job. And it makes them so angry that they just put in that extra energy and they go right to the top. And I'd like to be that person in your career. <laughs> and I dropped a cup and broke it. And I was just, you know. And, uh, and he stormed out. We never heard from him again. He's an accountant somewhere. I don't know. But... Uh, <laughs> I, I have no recollection of how it goes. Oh, you mean Sigland farewell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 when when they had a retirement party for David, I, I wrote a parody of what so old Lang Syne, yeah, called Sigland's farewell, which, um, on cue, I cannot possibly sing. I have no, no recollection of how it went, but it was good. <laughs> it was good. They liked One of the it. Better songs you've ever written. Yeah. <laughs> Gone. I love the melody. Yeah, the melody. <laughs> one of my best. <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. Memorable. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Yeah. Other people, other people yeah, it was have a used chorus. it. It went up. <laughs> Tom and Peggy, when did you first meet each other? I remember it very well. Uh, I met Peggy. Uh, in London in 65 on our first, uh, the first time we went over. We were on a, a folk show at St. Pancras Town Hall and there were about 
It was a benefit. Yeah, a benefit. a benefit. There were about six different artists on the show, and Peggy and I were each on that. So that, mm -hmm. that was the night I met you. Yeah. We just followed one another. I don't think... I don't remember that we met after that, did we? No. No, I don't think so. Strange, isn't no. it? Strange is in the night. <laughs> that was one of your better melodies, Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I tell a quick... I want to tell a quick Mike Seeger story. This is great. Mike was a real patsy for kids. And my daughter was, uh, what, seven, eight at the time, maybe nine, I don't know, somewhere around in there. And, and Mike was staying with us. And she and her little friend, Dana Shipman, decided they were going to make pancakes for breakfast. And, and Mike said, yeah, oh, great. I love pancakes. So they made these pancakes, but instead of flour or sugar or whatever they were supposed to put in, they put in salt. Hey. And, <laughs> and he ate all the pancakes without complaining. Uh, what a hero. <laughs> I like salt too, so that's all right. Runs in the family. Peggy, I remember you, you said something up in the room. You said something about We're sharing Dave. a bedroom, by the way. Yes, it's great. Yes. <laughs> She's brave because I have a woman partner these days. <laughs> I, also, I have women my won't share a room with me. <laughs> <laughs> You said something about Dave hired you at the Ark. What was that you said? that He lost money? But well, actually, this was wonderful because the first three or four times I came, the place was packed at the house. You know, I think we came once with our children. We came with, with the two boys. And gradually, the, 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 um, the house went down. And I don't think, since you've moved to your new premises, that I've made money for you at, at, at the Ark. And you kept hiring me because you liked the music, you know. It was well. That's what it's all about. It's, that's what it's all about. So thank you. Yeah. We had. Um, I used to have this book before this before computers, and I would write guarantees and blah blah blah, and you know, and I and somebody said to me, well, you shouldn't have. That. I mean, what if you lose the book and somebody sees the guarantees? I went, oh, so I put this um, code thing in. And I remember, and I lost the book at home one time, and I could remember everybody except this one week. I couldn't remember if I booked that week or if somebody was coming that week. Was it week my or, week? No, no, it was Rosalie's. And uh, so I booked it. And for an entire week, I had like two acts. <laughs> and I would call people, and when I realized who was coming, I, like, I called Rosalie and said, I'll pay you to not play because, <laughs> because I have this other act. You know, I called both of them. And Rosie said, well, I want to play. So I said, well, come on, you know. And uh, that was pretty scary, actually, in my young life, to suddenly have twice as many acts as you <laughs> thought of and, and only one door. <laughs> actually, we all have... Um, I was thinking of your, your gig from hell. We get together sometimes at festivals and things, us performers, and we tell each other the gig from hell. You know, but we, never talk, we never talk about the gigs from heaven. Isn't that a shame? You know, mm. where things just, and where the organizers are just so nice. You know, I was at a club in Northampton called the Iron Horse, which I shall not name. <laughs> <laughs> 
and they had they had failed. This is way back. They had failed to to let anybody know. The people who were in the audience says, "We didn't know it until you phoned us up because we live in this area. We didn't even know you were on." So the, you know, publicity had literally failed. And there were about 16 people in the audience. And the organizer at the time um, didn't want to pay us because there weren't enough people in the audience. And we'd taken the trouble to get there. Da, 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 da. So there's organizer, but you were an organizer from heaven. Thank you very, very much. You asked if there were any surprises. There was one surprise, and it was one of the nicest performers and one of the worst nights ever from a performance standpoint. And I will name her because she was a wonderful person, and it, this wasn't her fault. Sonia Malkin. Oh, yes. She was married to Georges Malkin, who was a French painter whose stuff is in the Louvre, and she uh, was this, they had fought in the resistance, and she played the hurdy-gurdy, and I saw her at Mariposa, I think it was Mariposa, and I thought, oh, I've got to bring this person to the ark, you know. So she came with the hurdy-gurdy, and I, this is going to be fantastic, French folk music with a hurdy-gurdy, and she learned all these American folk tunes from the... Uh, uh, some little folk book, like Froggy Went Accordin' and the Leather Wing Bat. She started playing these songs on the hurdy-gurdy, and we're going, what the hell is this? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, she, and she came into the kitchen during the break, and I said, wow, that's really good. Boy, I bet they'd love to hear some French folk. And said, oh, no, they don't want to hear the French folk songs. They want the American folk songs. And she went back out and did more Leather Wing Bat <laughs> stuff. But she stayed with us for a week and told us all these amazing stories about World War II and the French Resistance and all that stuff. She was great. Tom, I'd like to ask you, uh, I didn't get to during the interview, I don't even know if this exists anymore, and this is ha having to do with being around as long as you have. Back in the day when you were in the village and all the people were congregating there, I know you all hung out a place called the Kettle of Fish. Yes. What was that like? The Kettle of Fish was... Uh, a bar on McDougall Street right next to the Gaslight. The Gaslight was a, a cellar, a cellar folk club. Uh, Dave Van Ronk used to say, you didn't want to go in the Gaslight when the lights were on. Uh, <laughs> and he had that right. Uh, but uh, we loved it. I mean, it had a microphone and a light and, and a stage and an audience. Uh, so we didn't care. But the kettle of fish was where you went to get something alcoholic because the gaslight was strictly coffee. Um, and there was a table just inside uh, where we mainly uh, hung out. And around that table, you, you could find um, uh, Van Rock, Bob Dylan, Eric Anderson, Phil Oakes, Patrick Skye, and moi. And... Uh, Dylan was always given Oaks hell. He was, they had this love-hate thing. Uh, I mean, Phil just idolized Bob, and Bob was very mean to Phil most of the time. And one night, um, I was sitting next to Bob, and uh, an argument was going on across the table, and Bob said, um, well, well, listen to this, what, what do you think? And he sang into my ear, uh, Gates of Eden, which he had just written. And uh, he said, what do you think? What do you think? I thought, I think it's great. It's a great song. 
another night, we were at the Bitter End, Bob and I, and having a drink. This is about 1970. And he said, you know that song of yours that uh, the Annie's going to sing her a song? He said, I, I like that song. He said, I'm going to record that song. I said, great. And last year, he did. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it, it sounds great. The only thing is that not a single note of my melody is in it. And not a note. But, but do you still get the royalties? Yes. <laughs> yes. Because first time ever is not the way you and McCall wrote it. Is that right? Or not. Oh. Now, the first line's very different. But he got the royalties. We do. Yeah. What was... The original first line. I'm not good enough to sing it, but it's rough, roughly, the first time ever I saw your face. Mm. And she changed it, the first time ever I saw your face. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. And she also, Ewan wrote it as a starter, as a, you know, um, an hors d'oeuvre. And uh, she changed it into an entree, you know. She really did. Uh, yeah. And I didn't like it at first. Neither of us liked it, but I like it now. I think it's <laughs> yeah. but you Every know time that you go to the mailbox and get the check, you love it, huh? <laughs> no, yeah. not only that, I, I've learned that people singing this in their own way, in their own heartfelt way, and if you really Google that song, you'll find it done in hip-hop, in rap, in country, in, t in spoken word. It's been done in gospel. It's been done in, in, in uh, I was going to say barbecue sauce. No, it's not that one. <laughs> bar bar barbershop quartets. Um, it's been sung in every possible way. And for some weird way, it's truthful. And it's an amazing song that can come through that. I call it a, a war horse. You know, it really has been through, 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 the, through the mill and come out whole. I'm hoping that, it, hoping that in the last verse, you know, they sleep together rather than Elvis is where he dances with her instead. Don't know how they got their child, but there you are. <laughs> that, that reminds me of that you can, you can go on uh, YouTube and uh, go to Lawrence Welk and 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 see a performance of these impossibly wholesome couple, right? Singing one toke over the line. <laughs> well, you and, and, <laughs> and, and, and you're, you're boggled, and then you you have to find an explanation, and it's one one toke over the line, sweet Jesus, which must have done. They thought it was a Jesus song, so. Uh, <laughs> One toke over the line, sweet Jesus. It's, it's there, YouTube. Well, the, the, you know, the oral tradition is just absolutely amazing. It's like the game of telephone, you know. You yeah. sit around and say, uh, Ewan McCall wrote a song called Ho Chi Minh, which was very blustery. Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh. And it became the Vietnamese, uh, when you were on, on de demonstrations, you would, that would be your chant. Ho, Ho, Ho Chi Minh. Well, the Vietnamese have taken this, they put it into Vietnam. I mean, Google it, because if you can Google Ewan's version of it, and then the way the Vietnamese sing it, and they have this very sexy woman doing it like this, and it's turned into a Vietnamese almost lullaby, and it is absolutely beautiful, with a heavenly chorus just right behind it, everybody's singing, you know, beautiful. Yeah. It's a, so, you know, watching these songs, I feel with folk songs in a way that it's a good idea to go back to the beginning of, of a song developing and see 
how it was originally sung. I've changed songs hugely in my life, sometimes on purpose, sometimes without even, you know, because I feel in my egotistical way that I can do it better, you know. Not really like that, but when you transcribe a song from somebody singing, you miss a whole lot. What you're putting down on that that skeleton of a staff line is just literally the skeleton of the song. It's just the bones. And often gypsies in England didn't want to have their pictures taken because they felt they'd be captured, and they would be captured just in one of their endless metamorphoses into the future. So it's the same when you take a tune down that is, I mean, how do you, how do you transcribe, I've been a bad, bad girl, wouldn't treat nobody right. Now, how do you transcribe that? But my mother did, and people are lifting it off of that skeleton and trying to sing it. And it's the same way when you're learning songs from other people, but you go, go back to the beginning, rather than somebody who heard somebody who said they knew somebody who sang it, who heard it, you know, it's good to try and go back to the to, to the beginnings on this and just see what it was before you stamp your own self on Well, that's why Stefan yeah. Grossman did his tablature that way. He had no measures, no dividing, and if you wanted to learn the song, you couldn't unless you bought the album and the royalties went to the performer who actually mm-hmm. recorded Excellent. the song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then... <clears throat> And then, of course, there's the Google of Debbie Reynolds singing If I Had a Hammer. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, not to be missed. Not to be missed. <laughs> and, uh, here's how a song can escalate. Uh, Barry O'Neill, who is a uh, haphazard folklorist, is what he calls himself. He actually teaches mathematical psychology. He's a genius. He got a MacArthur grant, and nations use his writings when they're working peace treaties. But... And he loves, he just finds these amazing songs. Well, he found this one song one time called Sweeney Todd, the barber. My God, he was better than the play. And he started singing this, and everybody loved it in Ann Arbor. We all started singing it. We sang it, sang it, sang it. John and Tony came to the ark, John Roberts and Tony Barron. They loved the song. They learned it. They went back to where they lived. They started singing it. They said, wait a minute. Is he better than the plague, or is he better than the play? So they researched it, and they found a play that was the first play in the English language that was not based on an historical or religious theme. And it was a melodrama, and uh, it was about Sweeney Todd. And there actually was a Sweeney Todd, and, and uh, so they started doing the play. And I called them and I said, look, can you send me a copy of the play? Because I want to do it in Ann Arbor. They said, great. They sent me a copy of the play, and I was too busy, and I didn't do it. And a friend of mine, Jim Moran, said, can I borrow that play because... They're having a playwriting contest for the Ann Arbor Civic Theater, and I want to rewrite it into a modern version or whatever and, uh, and put it on. So he rewrote it, and he won the contest, but they wouldn't do it because it was too dark. So Judy Dow, who was on their committee, said, can I borrow that play? I want to show it to a friend of mine. She took it to New York and showed it to Stephen Sondheim, who was a friend of hers, and kaboom. They, he rewrote it, wrote that, and that's how that got done. And it all was because of Barry O'Neill in Ann Arbor. Yeah, he was, wow. <laughs> the Sweeney Todd was the one who chopped people up and made sausages out of yeah, them. Yeah, yes, yeah. and he really existed, yes. Yeah. Aren't we getting in a little deep in here? <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, this panel is called The Wisdom of the Elders. You are the elders. Do you have any wisdom to share with us? <laughs> I thought we were doing that. <laughs> yeah. 
Never I, put anything I actually in. do. I actually have something I want to share with anyone who writes songs and wants to write songs. Uh, I've thought about this and thought about this, and this is what I think you might try. And that is, upon leaving here, pick up a paper. Now, so far, this is typical. Pick up a paper. Find anything in the paper that moves you in any way. It can be to hilarity, to sorrow, to rage, whatever. So long as you're moved by something you find in the paper. And then write your song from the point of view of either a participant or an eyewitness to that story. And what this does is like Woody. It takes you out into the world where life is going on that we all need to document. Document our times by imagining ourselves in these uh, situations. It also has the benefit of getting you away from writing about your own boring life uh, with goddamn relationships. Uh, you could, there's always time to write those songs. But this is more serious. This gets you out there and you're, you're documenting your times as art. Do that. Can I take that a little further? If you look up a series of eight radio programs that the BBC put out called Radio Ballads, this was a form that you and, and myself and a, a radio producer named Charles Parker innovated back in the early 1960s. And the idea was to interview people who, had, uh, who were in a particular profession uh, or a trade, or maybe the first one was about a train accident. And then we did people who got polio, then we did teenagers, then we did boxers, then we did travelers, then we did fishermen and miners and road builders. There were eight of them. But the idea was totally counter to the ivory tower. The ivory tower is a very lonely and very hygienic place. It does not feed you. You sit there with your hand on your brow like the thinker and you are depending only on yourself. That's good for some things. But when you're writing about other people, this doesn't really work. You have to be with other people to do it. So what we did was we interviewed the people and then made a tapestry that consisted of their words spoken by them, new songs made out of the words spoken by them, instrumentation and sound effects. They lasted an hour and they went from one of these features to the other and we recorded the songs in the old style. And nowadays, you can track something, put something over, and you can make things sound like they're not and do all kinds of things. But we were working on analog tape. So in the studio, you would have a TR-90. You would have the tape machine feeding the informants, that is, the, the, the people speaking, and the, and, the, and the effects were being played on big gramophone records upstairs. And you had the band there. And it all had to go down on this little quarter inch of tape. So you had to get a really good performance from everybody right there. But this doesn't tell you about what I'm saying about songwriting. Ewan McCall wrote some of his best songs in what we call radio ballad technique. These programs were about the effect 
of work or a condition that the person had or a place in life that they were, the effect of that on them. So they were the only ones who could really talk about it with any validity. So you were talking about writing for your own time. There's a song in every single one of you. A good songwriter, or maybe a bad one who's learning to be good, could interview any of you and make a song out of you. There's a song about every single one of you because you're all unique and you've all had your own experiences. And a good interviewer could interview you or you or you or you about your, the effect of your life, your family, your country, your civilization on you. When you interview properly, really well, so that you are totally interested, things come out of people who seem to be dull, who seem to be bland, who seem to be beaten down by life. Things come out of you that you would not dream. And then all you have to do, especially if you're in folk music, because the things people say are very close to the way folk music is, is, is arranged. The, the, the folk music is people speaking from the past and people speaking from yesterday, day before yesterday. So the radio ballad technique doesn't say, I will write this song. It says, I will interview you or you or you and I will make the song out of your words, out of your breathing patterns, out of your rhythms and they turn out to be some of the most true things you could possibly imagine. And people will tell you the most unbelievable things and you take the song back to them and you say, is this what you want your song to be? You start out by saying, I will make this song, but I will not make it without your permission. I will take anything back to you. Now I've written about, oh, eight or nine, 10, 11 radio ballad songs. And they have a truth in them that is absolutely astounding, you know? Sometimes they end up quite long because people say so much, you know? But it's a wonderful way of, of writing songs. And it gives respect to the person because you take the songs back to them. And it's their words because these words come out of people who've experienced this. You haven't experienced it. You're not saying this happened to so-and-so, this happened to so-and-so. You're, you know, I interviewed, and I'll get, be finished with this in a minute. I interviewed an Asian woman who had lived in Kenya, and she was kicked out. She'd lived really well in Kenya. And she was kicked out when, what's his name, came in? Uh, 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 Idi Amin, was it? Was that? Yeah, yeah. yeah took over. He kicked Uganda. all the Asian ones. Yeah, Uganda. Uganda. Thank you very much. And uh, there's so much kicking out in Af Africa, I lose track. And uh, she was kicked out and found herself in West London working in a, a film factory of processing film. In other words, she had plummeted from here to here. She found herself leading a strike. Amazing, absolutely amazing when the, when the Grunwick strikers came out. So I went to interview her and she began by saying, I do not speak high in your language. And so I had to interview her. She had very basic, but fairly good English. So I interviewed her and I, I said, tell me about your life. She said, I was born rich in the womb. I said, what do you mean? She says, in your language, silver spoon in my mouth. Mm. And this whole thing goes through that with her language. When I sang the song back to her, she said, I hear myself talking. And I was using her words. However, 
and this is the final point, who are you when you sing this song? You can't say, I am Jayaban Desai, because I'm not. People won't believe that, you know. When the person plays Hamlet, you can't say, I'm Hamlet, because you're, we know you're not. You are acting this. And I also couldn't say, she's Jayaban Desai, because that distanced me too much. So the result was to make an entire song without a single personal pronoun in it. No, pro, no personal pronoun. And it's the way she talked anyway. So, you know, this is a wonderful process. And she absolutely loved the song. Okay, so what do you do for a tune? She's Asian. So I used an Appalachian tune with banjo playing and she hears herself talking because we share a lot right across the folk spectrum in the way we accompany things, in the way we make the tunes. And it, it worked, you know, but took a lot of work, you know, to make it work. No? So these are just throwing out ideas. The radio ballad technique is really quite wonderful. Oh dear, sorry. David Siglin, <laughs> words of wisdom. After those? After those. <laughs> Never put anything in your mouth that's bigger than your head. <laughs> <laughs> and that works. <laughs> oh, Dave, a little more than that. Is there any question you weren't asked that you wish you had been, that you wanted to share? No, but I, I will say that when I retired, I had probably, um, I had like 3,000 recordings made from the ark. And I, or nine, no, 1,900 recordings, about 3,000 shows, and I donated them all to the university on three conditions. One, that they would digitize all of them, and two, that they would create a website whereby people could go on the website and listen to these shows. And three, that these shows were owned by the performers who made them. And they had to contact the performers first, let the performer hear the show, and the performer would then make the decision, or their family, if they're not here, make the decision as to what was to be done with the show. If the performer could say, bury it, I don't ever want anybody to hear it, or they can listen to it but not record it, so it's not downloadable, or they can listen to it and record it, Joe Hickerson wants everything recorded and downloadable, or they can listen to this, this, and this, but I don't want that song on it or that song on it. Well, however they decide, that's what's going to be done. And unfortunately, universities move very slowly, and uh, this was started seven years ago, and it's, they still haven't got the website up, but he keeps holding the carrot and promising me next month, next month. <laughs> and I would say, and I, they've digitized 83 shows, and I've been listening to these shows, and I'm having a marvelous time, I have to tell you right now. <laughs> But uh, what a wonderful thing to do. there will be a website by this summer up, and you'll be able to hear shows at the Ark. And it's interactive, so you can say, I was there, his fly was open, it was a terrible show, you know, whatever you want to say. Up to a point, there will be a person judging that. Great. And, wonderful. Uh, That's so wonderful. Yeah, that's great. All right. Peggy. All righty. I want to thank my panelists for being here. Peggy Seeger. Tom Paxton. David Siglin. And my co-host, Britt Laskin. And I'm Sunny Oaks. And I want to thank Sunny for the opportunity of being here and sharing the stage with people I have nothing but admiration for.
You've just heard a panel discussion that took place at the Folk Alliance International, Wisdom of the Elders, with Peggy Seeger, Tom Paxton, and David Siglin. Uh, as Sonny said right before we started, this was one of her favorites, and Sonny, I can see why. What, what great stories, and, and really the three of them together uh, sharing so many memories. That was a, I think it was a good one that we started with here. <laughs> I think so, too. I think maybe we should take this show on the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a way, we're going to do that because we do have some new episodes that we're going to produce uh, specifically for this podcast. In fact, I think next month, if people tune in, uh, they'll be able to catch the new one. And, of course, you'll see uh, an archive of these eventually, of all of these wonderful panel discussions that you've created over the years. Uh, some exciting guests, some exciting memories that we'll be sharing again and some new ones. Uh, it's really a nice kind of a, an oral history of our folk community. So I, I congratulate you for uh, coming up with this idea in the first place and to see it now take on a, a life of its own. Thank you, Ron, for all the work you're doing on this. And thanks to NERFA for giving us the platform to get this going. And hopefully it will continue for a while. As, as you said, it will be a monthly show alternating past events with new ones that we create as we go along. So do tune in and to enjoy. And thank you for listening today. And I thank you, Sunny Oaks. I'm Rod Alesco. Again, nerfa.org or folkmusicnotebook.com. And eventually you'll have a whole menu of, of great podcasts to choose from as we go back in history and create some new history of our own. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Wisdom of the Elders. We'll see you again next month.